In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who whatever present fillest all things, treasure of blessings, and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls, O Good One. This is going to be Lecture 4 in our Lectures on the Orthodox Survival Course. The topic today is going to be on modern art and spiritualism. This is a re-recorded talk from a lecture given previously at the parish, but because the quality of audio was a little bit bad and because that this lecture in particular has a lot of slides that go with it, I re-recorded it so that it might be fit better with your audio listening. Today we're going to begin talking about modern art, but I'd like to talk firstly why we should talk and look and discuss um, this subject. In looking at art, we can always see the truth of the spirituality of one's culture. So studying this subject throughout time gives us a glimpse on how humanity is in its spiritual state. If it's closer to God or farther away from Him, it reveals to us different truths about the human person. It reveals us to us the reflection of how that human person or artist thinks about God and the world around him and his fellow human beings. So the world of art can be a very eye-opening experience if we look into it. What we'll see today in modern art is that humanity has taken a drastic turn. We talked about the evil and destruction that came from the French Revolution and the philosophies that came after it and how man has been going into an abyss. The apostasy unfolds before him and he's led down further and further into darkness. And this becomes evident on the canvas and in sculpture and in all various different kinds of media, mediums that, be, that get put up into museums as artwork and displayed for people to look at. So first, when talking about this subject, we need to first talk a little bit about a philosopher that really helped fuel a lot of the ideologies that would go along with modern art and also other modern philosophers that modern artists would be inspired by to put things on canvas and to make other sorts of art. And that is Immanuel Kant. Father Seraphim said that Hume destroys external reality, but Kant restores the self as the center of reality the mind or the self as a center of reality, and this, then this becomes the new God. This is the new God. The old God is dead. So Kant critiques the way in which we judge an object and the way in which we perceive or define beauty. There is no ideal beauty. He says that there could be no objective rule of taste by which that is beautiful may be defined by means of concepts. 
Thus, an interaction with the existence of an object and sensing one's taste for it, he must recognize that it must have a subjective principle. So there's no objective beauty anymore. And we see this in the destruction of the churches uh, during the French Revolution, the exaltation of, uh, of wisdom, right? And the pushing of God further and further out side of man's reality, which is essentially what he's doing when he proclaims deism. He's not speaking any truth about God, but a truth about himself, and that he has detached himself from God. But he vainly thinks that God has nothing to do with him. So now Kant comes up with this idea, and it rolls into history, into modern history, and fuels many disastrous ideas and concepts and ways of life. So in first getting into modern art, we want to talk about this artist that's kind of on the cusp between kind of a more classical type of art and the modern art that we'll be talking about, and that is Francisca Goya. He lived between 1746 and 1828. He's one of the most destructive forces in bringing about a new art and the definition of a new humanity free from quote-unquote old regimes prior to the French Revolution. Art has no disguise and no pretext anymore, but gives visible form to a dream world, to the irrational, and exposes the inner state of a society divorced from the divine, cut off from divine life. And art begins to derive itself from inner man, and a new humanity is unhinged from divine or objective beauty. Hell is no longer constrained, and man is given himself to a demonic empire. So it becomes poured out in ink and in paint and in other sorts of mediums is this state of modern inner man that has become divorced from God and become like a beast. He is unhinged. An art historian, Hans Settlemeyer, said this about Goya. He said the eruption of hell into this world was a real and external thing, and it was thus that the painter would portray in it in pictures of the tempting of the saints and those dehumanized human beings that mocked and tormented our Lord. In the other case, however, that is the case of Goya, the one here before us, this world of the monstrous, has become part of man's inner world. It exists within man himself, and this brings us to a new conception of man, insofar as man himself becomes demoniac, it is not merely a matter of his outward appearance. It is that the man himself and all his world have become delivered to a demonic empire. Man is on the defensive. It is hell that has the overwhelming power and the forces that man can marshal against it are feeble and despairing. So if we look at this slide, one of Goya's proverbs, we see man altered and mutated faces floating in the background, a caricature of man, a demoniac. This is just one of many 
of the works in this series of Proverbs. And Sittelmeyer continues talking about specifically this continuation of works, saying, We see every disfigurement by which man can be made hideous, and every temptation by which his dignity can be assailed. We see demons in human form, and beside them bewitched creatures of every kind, monstrosities, ghosts, witches, giants, beasts, lemurs, and vampires. Kronos devouring his children seems like a nightmare personified as he squats like a naked giant on the edge of an oppressed world. And yet this pandemonium of unclean spirits has a kind of raging vitality. These are no creatures of artistic fantasies. These are bloody realities that have been personally experienced. So you see a difference here between, say, the figures that are painted behind the altar of the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, which are themselves grotesque and appalling and disturbing. But these were painted by the artist in a specific mind frame within a temple in order to teach man a lesson about himself and about eternity, the truth of the reality of hell and the demonic figures that dwell there. But here we see something much different. We see a hell that is experienced inside of man. And he becomes this demoniac, and all of it comes out onto canvas, and onto painting, and into sculpture, and later into the museum, which becomes his new temple. So all this takes place, really, at the height of the revolution, when occultism is very fashionable. And we talked about this in the previous lecture, lecture series, about how the occult became very popular as God was pushed out into the universe by these so-called brilliant philosophers, Voltaire and the rest. During this time is when Mesmer, where we get the term mesmerized from, you know, starts comes up all these things about hypnotism and animal magnetism and all these other occult, occultish type activities that are going on, allowing the demons to come in and flood the inner world of man and possess him with these unseemly dreams and fantasies that now become uh, artworks and poured out on canvas. The next slide. This, Fusli's sleep no more, with a demon perched upon a woman's abdomen as she's sleeping, and this crazy horse-like figure coming through the curtains. These are things that were experienced by the artist. These are not just allegories anymore, or eternal truths anymore but they're things that are being experienced by mankind. And a little later on in the early 19th century, we get Honoré Dumir, and Man as a Caricature first appears within the work of this artist. This slide, A Famous Cause, shows the wild face of a man in a courtroom. He no longer looks human, but ghastly. 
like a ghost, like a grimace. He comes a phantom, an animal, an apparition, an automaton. Art begins to change as man begins to change, and the concept about himself begins to change. He is turned into a monstrosity, Settlemeyer says. And a freak, an animal, a beast, a skeleton, an apparition, an idol, a doll, a sack. He appears ugly, a thing to excite misgiving, an unformed creature, an object, grotesque and obscene. His actions assume the character of the nonsensical, the absurd, the insincere, the comic, the brutal, the demoniac. The primary impulse behind it is doubt or despair concerning man as such, a denial of the goodness or beauty of human nature, and the conventional form of caricature is merely a pretext under which this view of man can be freely unfolded. So the truth and the beauty about man has been lost. As he divorces himself from God, he loses his bearing on who he is himself, the crown of creation. In this next slide on the imaginary invalid, we see an even more frightening spectacle of the one before. Faces become monstrous and ghastly and nightmarish. Like Settlemeyer says, this all comes from a misgiving about man. That divorced from God, he has lost his true compass and lost the concept of beauty and can possess divine qualities. The caricature is a pretext for this new view about man as a grimace and a phantom, as an automaton walking the earth can be explored and viewed and conceived. This is the danger that begins to come out portrayed on the canvas and in artworks. We say no importance in man anymore. He's tragic. He's a combination between the human morphing into the subhuman. Next, we move later into 19th century, into 1839, 19, to 1906. We, we begin to talk about the Impressionist and the pre-Impressionist, Paul Cezanne, for instance. And all of these paintings are very popular and are um, you know, much more beautiful to look at than maybe the ones uh, previously. We have to recognize in them a uh, certain philosophy that I think is useful to be aware of. Cezanne is a man of pure painting, that is, you know, the reduction of painting, to paint things as they are with no deeper connection behind them. It's very mechanical. It's a reaction to developed photography, to a machine. And so man becomes a machine. You see in this uh, slide the card players by Cezanne, that there's supposed to be nothing um, really behind it, no deeper me meaning. There is this obsession of painting the exact moment, just as a, a photograph would capture a moment, so a painter should capture a moment. And so everything becomes very automatic, very machine-like. The world becomes reduced to geometry, to mathematics. This painting, Mont Saint 
Victoire, was painted by him many times in his life. Firstly, with a very impressionist feel, and later, like this, very ge geometrical, where you can't make out buildings and hardly make out the fact that it is a mountain at all. It's all made up of blocks. And of course, it isn't, isn't as bad as, a, as cubism, which we'll talk about in a second, but nevertheless, it's pre-cubist. It's reducing the world to geometric spaces. There's been this loss of transcendence. There's been loss of divine and deep beauty. And next we get to cubism itself. The various early 20th century movements and later styles, you know, throughout the 20th century, we'll start first with cubism. The Pablo Picasso. Humanity reduced to mechanics. This slide here is first on the left, the girl with a mandolin and the portrait of Daniel Henry Conweiler. Everything becomes reduced, disfigured, turned into a machine. With Henry Matisse and the Fauvism, Fauvism literally means the beasts. They reduce everything to color and expression of color. This would be later taken out to a further extreme by Jackson Pollock, who would literally just lay canvas on the floor and dribble paint everywhere all over it as he was inspired to do so. Whatever way he was inspired to move his hand and dribble whatever color he had on his brush. Until there came about this pattern, this so-called random pattern that would make, you know, these paintings now that now sell for millions and millions of dollars. And also in the early 20th century, we have the Dada movement and Duchamp with his so-called fountain. This slide that shows Duchamp's fountain, which was really just a urinal turned on its side and put into a art museum. It was a, reje a rejection of all logic and a reaction against World War I. Rejects all logic, reason, aesthetics. These various early, early 20th century mu movements uh, will lay the foundation for later styles throughout the 20th century that will become more and more uh, absolutely absurd. And it shows to us that man is breaking down. He's becoming something of a beast. He is not anymore a logical creature, but is losing his bearings as he walks away from God. And now truth and art become things like this urinal on its side. You know, other things from the Dada period are things like blueprints, Things that look like blueprints, that is, of spark plugs and machinery and everything reduced down to these cogs that man is this cog just within a world that is a machine. And Descartes talked about this. Descartes talked about how the world is the machine and we need to bridle it, you know. And so now the world has lost its transcendence. Mankind has lost its transcendence. 
and he's looking for it on earth, reducing himself. Reduction after reduction after reduction. Dada is just like any other movement since the French Revolution, trying to get rid of the old order and establish a new one. Trying to get rid of all logic, all reason, all aesthetics and build a new tradition, a new aesthetic. And this happens over and over and over again in the 20th century. That's why there is no distinct art movement of the 20th century. Man is constantly, constantly stepping on the dead bodies of his predecessor in order to try to establish a new truth about himself, but always failing because he has lost his idea of God and he has walked away from the Holy Church. He has no way anymore um, to heal himself. He doesn't know the medicines of the spiritual life anymore. He's divorced. And now he's found himself in this dark valley and this abyss. And this is how he deals and he copes with it. So we get into talking about, you know, subhumanity and man as a reduction. The dignity of man is lost and a personal hell is projected onto canvas and now his world drives into complete absurdity. He's conscious of his own death, but devoid of dignity. And death becomes not tragic, but infernal, and it erupts into the world. Settlemare says, Once hell was a clearly circumscribed domain that stood in contrast to a universe that had meaning and reason. But by an almost similar aberration as that which, in the 19th century, caused men to see the gleam of heaven in the natural light, which, shows, which shone down upon all things, so that even a load of hay was transfigured by it. There now erupt into reality the most terrifying visions from the antechambers of hell and from the circles thereof. The coming of these visions was a thing unknown to those who conjured it, but they came for all that nothing is immune to their influence. Whatever belongs to horror and the night, to disease, to death and decay, Whatever is crass, obscene, and perverse, whatever is mechanical and denial of the spirit, all these modes, motifs, and aspects of the inhuman take hold of man and of his familiar world. They make of man a ruin, an automaton, a mask, a phantom. He sinks to the level of a louse, an insect, in various movements of modern painting. It is always one or the other of these various anti-human attributes that is underlined. Cubism lays the emphasis on deadness, expressionism in boiling chaos, surrealism on the cold demonism of that last icy regions of hell. Even if the actual works of art have been lost, the very titles chosen for the pictures by the men who painted them would be sufficient to betray their spiritual home. Fear, sick city, dying city. My portrait as a skeleton, plague above, plague below, plague everywhere. So man's new home is the earth. The earth without God. A demonic realm and a demonic empire. And now we get to this painting of surrealism. 
this movement, as Settlemayer clearly points out, paints the demonism of the last icy regions of hell. That is everything that we had talked about first in the paintings of Goya have now been completely realized in the Surrealists. All the obscene, all the twists, all the morphings of humanity have been completely put onto canvas. The world has become completely surreal. That is, it's been completely invaded by demonic forces and influence. This painting itself by Max Ernst, triumph, The Triumph of Surrealism, just shows chaos as an absolute. We get to abstract expressionism, like Marth Rothko's violent black, orange, yellow, on white and red. It's nuclear art, a reaction to World War II. But man, we see here, is completely fragmented and disjointed. He has lost himself. And I want to say a little bit here about the museum as a temple. There's this concept that the museum becomes the new temple. That is, it becomes the new place where demonology is taught. That these concepts about new man are taught. Just as one is to walk into a temple and see the icons of the saints and of the gospel stories and of the parables of heavenly reality and the reality of what man truly is. We see these things on the walls of the churches. They inspire us to become truly human. But in these museums, they have become temples. And these modern artworks have become their icons and their teachers. And modern man is now taught that he is divorced from God. He is something of a disjointed person, a beast, something that is twisted, contorted, something that is all evil, something that experiences the demonic realm, a being that is disturbed and unable to cope with his reality. When we take all these things into consideration concerning modern art and put them in contrast with, say, the holy icon, we come to a realization of how far man has gone, modern man has gone, away from the living God and away from the realization of himself as the crown of creation, as a spiritual and physical being. And so the icon, for instance, portrays a deep spiritual reality. It depicts man in the eschaton, the fullness of himself, when he is redeemed after the second coming. So we look into the icon, we look into this eschaton, we come to an understanding, a deep, a very deep understanding of the spiritual reality of man and the spiritual reality of our potential. Is It's deified man and, it, and the icon is longing for our deification. When the saint is staring back at us and piercing into our souls, he is calling us to repentance, he or she calling us to repentance and a movement of the soul towards God a movement of the soul towards living in eschaton. But with modern art, we see something very different. We see modern man venerating his horrors and his demonic dreams and his listlessness and how he is lost, dribbling paint all over a canvas 
as opposed to the haloed, transfigured human being. This is why I thought it was important uh, to go over Father Seraphim's notes on modern art, because we begin, to, we begin to peel away a little bit into man's soul and see where he's really at. Yes, these philosophies have pushed him that we've talked about in the last few lectures, and he is be, he's come into this abyss. But where does he see himself in a spiritual reality? Where does he see himself in the midst of the world, in the midst of other human beings? And this is really seen on these canvases and in the sculptures and other things of the time. You know, man is a urinal, if you can interpret it that way, or as scribbles on a canvas. Man is a machine, just dissected up into mathematic geometry. All of these things, the reduction of the human person, is really portraying a great lie. And that great lie is that man cannot move above the earth that he is bound to. And so modern artists are shoveling the dust every which way to try to look for some deeper meaning in life. And sometimes later, completely rejecting that there is even a deeper meaning in life. And this is all there is. This just demon-like ruled fantasy that is absolutely terrifying. A black abyss. And we even see it with later artworks. That will give us just a black canvas or a dot on a white abyss of a canvas. Splattering. And various other artworks that completely miss the objective reality of man and embrace this subjective idea that there is no beauty, there is no truth, and it is up to one's own perception. But especially when this perception is skewed and drastically altered away from divine revelation and reality, man really loses a grip on himself and he portrays himself and sees himself and experiences himself in a dark demonic abyss. So what I think is good to couple with this lecture um, is, you know, this uh, the topic of spiritualism and the rise of spiritualism. And the reason why I think it's, it's good to couple with modern art um, is because, you know, modern art has no problem in portraying man as a demoniac and the world as horror and the reduction of reality and the reduction of the human person has no problem doing any of those things, but it has quite um, a big difficulty in portraying man as he actually is, as this crown of creation, as St. Simeon the New Theologian says. So where does man go when he looks for um, an otherworldly reality? If, deism is, if the demon of deism is still on his back and he believes God is far away or God is dead and does not exist at all, then he starts to look for spiritual experiences in this life. And there is nothing holding him back from experiencing those spiritual experiences. But what he does not have as a safeguard is the Holy Orthodox Church and asceticism, and the concept of prelist, that is, 
of demonic deception, of reaching for miracles and signs and wonders and all these things without having any preparation for them. So man has now opened the floodgates to not only being terrified by the demonic and experiencing a very dark world in his dreams and fantasies, but now he begins to experience them through different, quote-unquote, you know, religious experiences. And this is really where spiritualism begins to take rise. It's really a return to pantheism through deism. In pantheism and deism, this is Settlemeyer again, of the 18th century, a gulf was opened up between man and God. At first, the idea of God seemed much purer than that of a personal God. Our notion of God became divested of what seemed to be an anthropomorphic element, even as that element was expelled from architecture. What happened, however, was that this god of the philosophers evaporated into nature and vanished. While this was happening, something was also changing in the idea of man, which was divested of its theomorphic element, even as God had been divested from the anthropomorphic. The result was very different from what had been intended, for man by this process was reduced to the level of an automaton when he was not reduced to that level of a demon. This radical deism divorces man from God and arises from the fact that God is relegated into a far distance. Man has pushed God away so that the world begins to be regarded as distinct and wholly separate from God himself. God is an absent God, they say, right? And now he's the one who created the great clock and is pushed away from the world. So he's reduced to this automaton and starts to experience this, this demonic pantheism. He begins to search now within himself for some spirituality, not looking to God, not looking to ascetic practice of a true faith, but looking into himself, into this dark reality. And just as modern art has its own religious background in a way, even if it completely rejects it, it, it's really deism that moves towards pantheism. This is evidenced, especially in the period of the early 16th century, in the painter of Hieronymus Bosch. Our orthodoxy is really lost, and the demonic realm enters. Even at that stage, an early stage, one might look at this painting and think that it is... Um, something of modern art, but it's actually a classical artwork. But here you can see already these fantastic figures, these demonic um, appearances, these ghastly figures. Fish become half man, half fish. They start to take on human heads, human feet. Animals have demonic faces and teeth devouring other animals or men. So the true reality of the human person and his religious compass is totally out of whack. So as inner man is lost into darkness and the abyss, he starts to experience 
the reality of where he is at physically. And that means manifestations of the demonic realm and obsession with them. So in America, in the mid-19th century, you have um, this phenomenon of spiritualism that begins to take um, root and also snowballs into a, a much bigger movement and collides with all sorts of modern-day movements that we're even experiencing today. But basically, I, ge I guess some people would trace these things back to the Hydesdale events, which occurred in the mid in the mid 19th century, um, with three sisters, the Fox sisters, Margaret, Kate, and Leah. And basically, what this these these sisters had um, heard these mysterious what they call the rappings, which were knocks on either furniture or walls. And two sisters were in on it together and kind of convinced an older sister that these things were actually happening. They started making uh, noisemakers um, because they were actually doing the wrappings themselves, at first, that is. And they would ask questions and a quote-unquote spirit, which was just another sister in another room or some noisemaker that they had made, would make a knocking or a rapping noise. And that's how they would know that the spirit answered them, even though later this was all, they all, you know, uh, repented of it as a hoax. One actually became a nun and repented of all these things altogether. But nevertheless, they're dabbling in the spiritual realm and trying to contact spirits. And things start happening and the wrappings become real, and they become famous. Um, and even detectives and, and others start to run to them to ask them to help to solve murders and all sorts of things. It becomes this extreme event. And you even see this, uh, it's, it's funny, you know, this, these um, mis mysterious uh, murders that are being solved by these wrappings and this occult practices. You even see this in the Sherlock Holmes stories uh, where he uses different, uh, sometimes occultish type of uh, behavior in order to solve some pretty grim or otherwise unsolvable crimes. So these sisters um, really start to be the, the foundation for what would be known later as um, the spiritualism movement. And also around this time we start to see the development of new sciences and religions. First of all, these sciences that try to discover and test spirits it's really the return of science to alchemy that we had talked about in the French Revolution and prior to the French Revolution, even the Renaissance, where science was always looking outward into the world and trying to discover the world, but at the same time um, was steeped into alchemy, occult, um, astrology. And this was mixed in with all of the rationality 
even, um, of the sciences. And at this time, you start to get the sciences that develop just in order to, quote-unquote, test spirits. So testing the temperature of a room, if a spirit has come into a room, or tepping, uh, temping a body um, of a person when they had come into contact with a spirit, or other various um, ways in which to try to either discover or harness some kind of otherworldly presence. And you, even the various uh, tyrannical governments of the 20th century tried these different sciences, these parapsychology and other various schools um, of thought to harness power. You know, there's stories of the, the communists who, in order to try to preserve Lenin, you know, their, their saint, if you will, their incorrupt saint, um, after he died, was to send ex excavators and uh, scientists to the Kiev caves to test the moisture of the air, the temperature, um, the the soil, the all these all these different uh, ridiculous tests in order to try to harness some kind of spiritual energy or scientific energy. Um, that would preserve Lenin's body, just like many of the saints in the Kiev caves never decomposed. They wanted the same uh, power in order to uh, preserve Lenin himself. And speaking of, when we talk about the communists and their harness, their their attempt to harness. Um, spiritual powers and the and the depth they dove into the occult itself. Um, one thing for an Orthodox Christian person to realize is that the worst satanic movements and spiritualist movements come from former Orthodox Christians or former societies that were Orthodox, like the occult, because they know the truth of true spirituality and they're actively actively rebelling against it so we have next the beginning of the theosophical society headed by elena petrovna blavatsky this woman was baptized as an Orthodox Christian in a home, and the priest who baptized her, his vestments caught on fire by a candle nearby. And when Elena heard about this later in her life, you know, she talked about how from birth she would be an enemy to the church. She supposedly went all around the world studying all sorts of different religions in India, Hinduism, delving into Neoplatonism. She was syncretic. This spirit um, of the modern age to meld all religions together to come into a new 
form of consciousness, a, hu a new human consciousness. That somehow all of these religions exist without God, but possess within themselves some kind of spiritual power that man can harness. And so the Theosophical Society is extremely occultic and paved the way for acceptance of Eastern cult religions in America. This figure, Elena, she traveled all around the world, like I said, um, to New York City where she really embraced the spiritualist movement. She later went to Greece, met with a man named Master Hilarion, who thought he was the incarnation of the Apostle Paul. And she met all of these other great figures in Tibet, in India, and other places around the world. She would develop in 1875 a esoteric organization with other spiritualists called a Theosophical Society, which basically means the divine wisdom or the God's wisdom or God wisdom. She insisted that this was not a religion in itself. But very a white umbrella where everybody can find a place within it. So this idea that it reaches to all people and to all things. It's a wisdom above all other religions and it envelops everything. Her ideas of the Theosophical Society was basically an emphasis on a so-called ancient power religions or ancient wisdom religions which pervaded the world prior to Christianity. So she was trying to revamp a old uh, magical tradition that she said Christianity had erased. But it was promoting itself uh, consciously um, through magic and occult experiences that their parties and their societies were experiencing. They believed that they were a revival of ancient wisdom, an ancient religion that spread out across the entire world and would eclipse all world religions. That means it would envelop all other religions. Their motto was, there is no religion higher than the truth. And basically there were three objectives they followed. Uh, to form a nucleus of universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction, race, creed, sex, caste, or color. To encourage the study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science. And to inve investigate the unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in man. So you can see that... They're looking with inside themselves without any power above um, to find this so-called ancient wisdom that would envelop all of man. And by now, man is just a, a, a hollow uh, shell with this great, huge, dark abyss on the inside. But yet this theosophical society and these spiritualists promote trying to find this so-called ancient wisdom um, deep within the core of man. 
And when we're not ready for spiritual experiences and we're reaching for something that is not um, prepared, that, we don't, that we're not prepared for, we easily fall into prelists and spiritual deception. When humanity has lost any guard against the tricks and the foolery of demons, then he has completely lost himself when he is opening himself up to these spiritual experiences that he shouldn't be experiencing. He's starting to converse with the demonic realm and ask for its manifestation on earth rather than looking toward the triune God and recognizing who he is and who he is supposed to become. This Theosophical Society also morphed into promoting a messianic figure. And this messianic figure was Jiddu Krishnamurti, who was a friend of Aldous Huxley and the Huxley family, who actually ended up living right over here in Ojai and building a camp. He was groomed and proclaimed as this Messiah, this one teacher. He lived his life promoting the different beliefs of the Theosophical Society, even though he ended up rejecting his, you know, quote-unquote messianic mission later. Um, he built his own occultic camp and a whole program on how man was supposed to find wisdom within himself to unite all humanity, to unite all religions under this occultic umbrella. So as man becomes obsessed with finding wisdom within himself, when he starts to think that he himself holds within him the power to become deified, to attain something that is trans-universal, that is trans-religious, and able to cater and be supreme to all other religious movements. He is really just falling into this same old trap of the revolution to destroy all old order and build, on, build up a new order. Here they're looking back into history thinking that Christianity had ruined everything and done away with this quote-unquote ancient godlike wisdom and that they were going to attain it again and it was going to be pantheistic. They're trying to establish a new world order, trying to establish a new one religion based on these experiences of man that we saw in the in modern art the depravity the abyss the depth the demoniac all of these things now come into his reality not as dreams through the spiritualistic movement but as manifestations and powers that man uh, futilely thinks that he somehow um can possess or harness in order to control various things in his life. 
So man really becomes the center of his own universe. And as he becomes the center of his own universe and starts to look for all of these different um, miracles and manifestations and experiences, then you see in the 19th century all of these different religious groups springing up out of nowhere. Scientology and this concept of the Thetan, some inner being that is within you that needs to be erased so that you can become clear and move up in stages. You can become a true human if you look within yourself and find your true self. Eastern cults, the Hare Krishna movement, which, which we'll talk about in a few weeks the new, when we talk about new religious consciousness. Hinduism mixing with philosophy in America, and it becomes very American. It caters to the senses. You look within yourself to find the truth about the world and true wisdom. It seduces modern man with all of the sensory perceptions. All of his senses become inflamed by the music, the colors, the, the food, etc., etc., within these Eastern cults. Schools of modern psychology to discover answers, with, answers within. A concept of quote-unquote personal awareness that is foreign to any Christian concept. Humanity thinks that he can help himself along the road to self-transformation. When in, with, when in reality, what is really within himself is a deep, dark chasm without any way to heal. Without the divine mystical life of the church, the praxis of the church, he is lost in this kind of utter abyss, in this darkness, and embraces it. Thinks God is far away. Thinks he doesn't need God and God is dead and doesn't exist even. And yet can promote himself towards a new plane, a new man, a new religion, a new world, a new consciousness. As you can see now, as we've been talking about history building up, we really see humanity looking to himself now in order to push himself into a new horizon, to push himself into a new, quote-unquote, evolution. But of course, you know, this is all futile, and it's all disastrous without having Christ in your life, without having the church in your life. So there's no transformation in all of these modern concepts. There's no transformation in spiritualism. You don't need to do anything even to come into these states of spiritual phenomena. And they become possessive over your life because there's no control over them. Modern concepts of experience require no change of the self. There needs to be an awareness and a criticism in this age. Of Orthodox, for Orthodox Christians to have, so we don't fall into pits of destruction. 
because there's so much talk, even in modern um, media. But none of these things heal the soul. And we see it in modern art. And this is why I think these two topics are really good to uh, couple together. It's because the reality that's what is happening in spiritualism is being portrayed on the canvas by artists. Though they may not be in the same schools of thought, though some of them are, but it doesn't necessitate them to be, because the artist is now experiencing the demonic realm because of his inner state, while the spiritualist is experiencing these things first in his dreams and his fancies and later in physical manifestations. The artist also makes them physical manifestations, but on canvas. The spiritualist is calling the demonic now to interact with its own empire. Christianity is done away with. You know, that quote-unquote monstrous religion that suppressed all ancient forms of wisdom. That suppressed true man, you know, from finding himself. Now we're free to find ourselves, now that we've done away with Christianity. Orthodoxy has the only prescribed medicine to heal the soul in the modern age. We don't find it deep within us. It's given to us and we take these medicines out of obedience for healing. Once we begin to heal ourselves by the sacraments of the church, then we find the kingdom of heaven deep within us. We don't just start to make other rules for ourselves. We don't run after different religious experiences and fancies in order to reach some kind of transformation. No, our transformation only comes through Christ and obedience to his church. And it is only in the church that we find the real depth and meaning of, of life and what the human person can become and is. So may God help us forward not only to reject and stay away from the paths of um, corrupt and deadening philosophies, but also to give our light and our life and the true meaning of what it means to be human and the true meaning of spirituality and a genuine spiritual life that is all bound up with human dignity to modern man who is absolutely thirsty and in need for it. It is truly meet to bless thee, the Theotokos, ever blessed and all blameless and mother of our God, more honorable than the cherubim and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, who without corruption gave us birth to God the Word, and our truly Theotokos, thee do we magnify. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen.